The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Mr. David Mas Masamoto. He is an organic peach, nectarine, apricot, and grape farmer in the Central Valley of California, just outside of Fresno. He's also an award-winning author of a number of books, including what might be his most famous, titled Epitaph for a Peach, which won the Julia Child Cookbook Award and was a finalist for a James Beard Award. His numerous recognitions include the prestigious Organic Pioneer Award by the Rodale Institute. He has served on multiple boards, including the National Council on the Arts, with a nomination by President Obama. Today, our conversation is going to focus on his newest book, which is a memoir titled Secret Harvest, A Hidden Story of Separation and the Resilience of a Family Farm. Welcome, Moss. What an honor it is to have you with me today. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to have this conversation with you. It's been many, many years, and I'm glad we could catch up in this format. Yes, we were both Food and Society Policy Fellows, and that's where our paths first crossed, and I learned about your remarkable work. But I have to tell you, as I was reading this particular book, I thought to myself, this is really the way we should be learning about history, through poetic storytelling and not through a series of dates and incidents that we have to memorize. So kudos to you for recognizing storytelling as key to really opening our hearts. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for that acknowledgement and recognition. And I totally agree with you. We live in a world so much where we want to just find the analytical facts and figures about things, but it leaves out the human dimension of our lives. And that extends not only to family stories, but clearly to the foods we eat and farming, in my case, too. They're all part of this grand story that I think fills in a lot of the gaps in our sensibility. As I was reading through your book, I felt like this incredible story wove together three important themes. The first is the immigrant story, and specifically the injustices faced by Japanese Americans and their internment during World War II. The second is the injustices faced by those with disabilities, and you're writing about how out of sight, out of mind applies here. And of course, the hardships faced by those who do farm labor. And so you've brought a lot of invisible suffering to light through the life story of your lost aunt. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Shizuko. Shizuko, uh huh? Shizuko. And she was your mother's oldest sister. So Correct. tell me first how your family got to California from Japan? Both my um, parents, my mom's and dad's side, all came around the early 1900s 
It was part of that immigration from Japan, and they all came from, of course, rural areas because it was a tough time in Japan at that time. And both my grandfathers were second sons. And so the point was they weren't going to inherit the family rice farm in Japan, so they were looking for something else. They were looking for a follow-up on their dreams. So they came to America to look for that and find that dream without the idea of going back to Japan. And then my grandmothers were both what they called picture brides. And that's where a bachelor would come over to America from Japan, send back letters to the village saying, I'm going to stay here and I'd like to find a wife. And then the families did some matchmaking through photographs. And suddenly my grandmothers met their husbands when they first got off the train or ship here in America. And that's how families were started. And that was the beginning of that immigrant story and that classic immigrant story. And I think you said your family were immigrants, too. They came with dreams and hopes, were met with probably a lot of challenges. And that's all part of the history of our families. And in my case, it was working the land. It was part of that legacy of farming that was part of that invisible story behind the foods we eat. Right. And there was such a strong work ethic, such hard work to reach that dream that was America. But the dream, it's almost like an illusion, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And we forget that that drive to have a better life was a driving force even today, I think. And we get lost in that because we get filled by things like materialism or the latest political news or something. But all this is swirling around the day-to-day life. And for immigrants, as my grandparents and then later my parents who were born here, they were poor farm-working families. A note for my grandparents was certain states, especially on the West Coast in the early 1900s, had what they called alien land laws, which specifically targeted Orientals from owning land. So my grandparents could never be farmers. They could always be only farm workers. And yet they stayed. They persevered because this was their hope and dream. And it also brings the idea that these dreams that families had, it wasn't just for themselves. It was for the future, for future generations. And we forget that most of the time when you work the land in farming, you don't think about the present. You're always thinking about the future. And I think that was part of that legacy that was part of our family history. Right. Let's talk about the arrival then to the United States. Was there a large group of Japanese Americans that settled in the Fresno area? How was that area a home place for immigrating Japanese There's a fairly large population here, maybe 10,000 in this Fresno Valley area, and they came in a classic immigrant fashion. The first arrivals, and my grandfather Masumoto was one of the earlier ones, they would write letters back to their little village, probably boasting how good life here was. So a lot of Japanese Americans in the Fresno area came from two areas of Japan, Kumamoto, which is in the southern part of Japan, very, very rural, and Hiroshima, which was another part of Japan and is a city area, but most came from Hiroshima were from the Inaka countryside. So it was a classic 
basically word of mouth saying, come to this area. It's a great area. And if you look at immigrant patterns, there's a lot of Armenians that came to the Fresno area right around that time escaping the genocide in Europe. And they came partly because this area looked a lot like their homeland, and they had an opportunity to work the fields and land here, too. So that was part of that story of classic immigrant population going to a place that they hoped they could find something better, generated by words, in this case letters, that people had sent back to their native villages. You speak about how immigrants, and especially immigrants of color, lived in poverty and they didn't have access to the health care that would have been afforded to wealthier white individuals. And this applies specifically to your mother's family. She had many siblings. It was her oldest sister, however, who is your lost aunt, who contracted meningitis. Tell me what happened there. Back in that era, we have to realize that healthcare was for the wealthy. Most poor people did very, very basic healthcare. A lot of folk medicine and cures were done. And as medicine evolved with newer scientific uh, information, that was for the wealthy and the privileged class. My aunt contracted meningitis, which, by the way, in that 1920s, was a worldwide phenomenon. We think about the pandemic that we just went through and are still going through. Well, there was that other one that happened in the, about 1917, 1918 that killed millions, by the way. And that continued so that there was an outbreak of meningitis nationwide. And meningitis in that case often was contracted by infants and children. And my aunt was five years old. She got meningitis, and from what I could put together in family stories, there was no question that they would take her to the hospital because many hospitals, frankly, wouldn't have accepted her because she was an alien. She was a foreigner. And also, my family came from a Buddhist background in Japan. So in that case, too, we forget many of the early medical institutions and hospitals were founded in a religious base, a Christian base. Would they accept non-believing Christians into their halls? My family didn't even attempt because they knew they wouldn't get treatment. So my aunt suffered meningitis. It damaged her brain, and she was going to be forever classified as a disabled person, and her mental disability would continue with the rest of her life. So she was about as a five-year-old through the rest of her life. And my mom remembers her as being someone who she was actually a little afraid of because my aunt was kind of a rowdy (laughs) five-year-old. And my mom was kind of afraid because my aunt would throw things around and everything. So for a while, the family just took care of her as best they can. But you also have to remember they were poor, They were farm workers, and then the Great Depression hit. Everybody was suffering in that case. But the family did the best they can to maintain their health as a poor farm-working family. And then World War II happened, and Japanese Americans were brought to internment camps. And I think it's interesting, you know, you mentioned how language is so important. We call them camps. They're prisons where Japanese Americans are brought. They are further discriminated against, seen as evil, shamed, and 
your family has to make a really hard decision about what to do with a child that has mental limitations due to her illness. And in addition, your grandfather at the time was dying of stomach cancer. So the family was going to be taken to a place that they didn't know what happened. One of the challenges is to understand the context of history in that case. When internment happened, and I was born after that, but all of my aunts and uncles, parents, grandparents did not know what was going to happen. All they knew is that they were being forced to relocate. They were forced to be put as prisoners of war in these camps in the rural and the scattered areas. And my family, both mother and father's side, went to an area called Gila River, Arizona, south of Phoenix, in the middle of the desert. They didn't know where Gila River was. They didn't know where Phoenix was. They had no idea. And you have to realize they did not know how long they would be there. In fact, there were some rumors that they would end up dying in the desert. So that my family was then faced with the question, what to do with my aunt Shizuko? And they didn't know, were there facilities that would help them in this site? And they made this hard, hard decision. They realized that maybe it would be better if we found a government authority to take her. And she became what they called a ward of the state back then. They signed her off, and it was a traumatic, dramatic moment where she left. Again, my aunt had very, very limited verbal skills, but the story was as the sheriff came to pick her up, she would turn and call to my grandmother, Mama, Mama, and that was the departing moment of the family. And the last time they saw her, and they believed they would never see her again. It was one of several extremely wrenching parts of this book, Moss. I can't imagine the grief and pain. We've got to take a break because we are already halfway through. But I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. David Moss Masamoto. He is an organic farmer just outside Fresno, California. He has written multiple books, but the one that we are just scratching the surface on today is titled Secret Harvest, A Hidden Story of Separation and the Resilience of a Family Farm. So your grandfather goes with the family. He's got stomach cancer. He ends up dying in Arizona at the camp. But your aunt is sent off to a facility that is going to care for her, an institution, a series of institutions. And there's something about silence, Moss. There's something about especially mental problems that our society does not speak of freely or easily. It was the case in your family. It was certainly the case in mine. What is it about mental illness or problems with our mental state that create an increased amount of silence and secrecy? I think one of the challenges is that how do we define what is normal? And we look at this idea that normal is this state that everybody's supposed to be striving for and anything that isn't normal is wrong. And when it's wrong, we also then, it must be something that must be hidden, 
must be disposed of, and we must keep it out of sight and out of public. And it's interesting because as I was tackling this issue of disabilities, I was new to this field too. I didn't quite understand the language to use. I didn't quite understand what was happening. And it was a challenge for me, and it continues to be a challenge because you start looking at the disabled community and realizing how much of it is hidden from all of us because there's a sense that, oh, no, no, these are abnormal, non-normal people, non-normal things around our lives. And I have to bring up the side story that in my farming career, I've always dealt with sort of things that were not exactly conventional in that sense. It was part of one of the reasons why I started farming organically. And we've always grown heirloom variety of peaches, nectarines. And as a result, all these heirloom varieties were considered not normal. They were out of the range of the typical system. So I've learned how to understand and how to cope with that and where that fits in our world and how much we have these intrinsic biases against what we consider a good peach or a good nectarine. The same way we have this bias of what's considered a good person and a proper person, a smart person, an intelligent person. And this story about my aunt opened this whole door up for me to understand how things were judged in the past, how those legacies got passed down in our families and became a secret. And you ask, what was probably the driving force? I actually think it had to do with shame. There was this idea that if you were disabled, especially if you had a mental incapacity, it was shameful, and families kept that hidden from them. And it was also part of that secret that families often shared and had. And then perhaps it was a Japanese way to persevere in silence, not to make waves, to become an accepted part of the United States by just being quiet. I think part of it was both this kind of Asian Buddhist idea. Uh, Buddhist, one of the central tenets was the idea that life is about suffering. And it wasn't the idea of overcoming the suffering. It was more the idea of acceptance of that suffering. Mm. And I truly believe that helped my family cope with the situation of not only with my aunt, but also the historical drama and trauma that they were faced with. And also for a lot of immigrants, their silence was their way of coping. It was their way of not making waves, of trying to find a way to fit in, trying to find a way to be accepted. And then you could claim that in many cases that happened. Certainly when I was growing up, a lot of these stories, these family secrets, I knew very little of. I knew nothing about this aunt, about the whole internment, the imprisonment of my parents and grandparents. I only heard a few stories about that, but no one sat me down and said, let me tell you what happened. And it was only because as I grew older, I started asking questions. That's when I began to learn more about this and then try to continue to ask questions and understand how did I fit into this and not fit in at the same time. So that idea of silence was a way of coping, and I totally understand that. And at the same time, in this newer age we're in, and myself as both an organic farmer and a writer, it's the exact thing I want to help convey to others, the understanding of how the silence is not necessarily a weakness. 
it's also part of the rhythms that we have, and it certainly fits the farming that we do, because most of our farming that we do is done in silence. Right. Well, you speak about the power in that silence, and you sprinkle the book throughout with Japanese ways of life and Buddhist philosophies, which help us, I think, embrace other cultures more. And there's something you write about to endure with tolerance. You fall down seven times and you get up yeah. eight. It, it was a phrase that my dad would just mention in passing. You know, nanakorobi yaoki is a Japanese way of saying it. And I just said, okay. And I grew up with this idea that that's how life is. It worked in many ways, and in some ways it didn't. But certainly for farming, it was the exact right philosophy, the exact right approach to farming and food. Life is going to be more filled with failures, so you just, when you fall down, you get back up. And I think in understanding the story of my aunt and how she survived 70 years being of institutional care and survived. She was in her 90s when we first, quote, discovered her living a few miles from our farm in Fresno. And it was a shock to our family. And yet at the same time, it opened the door up to the meaning of these family secrets. And for me to try to understand the power of silence and at the same time, the power of when you fall down seven times, you get up eight I think that's how my aunt survived 70 years of institutional care. She was feisty. She was an amazing, amazing woman. And it becomes part of that legacy of our family history. Do you want to tell our listeners how you found her? Uh, a wild story. I got a phone call from a funeral home. And I thought it was one of those phone calls where they're going to say, maybe you should you know, plan for your future <laughs> death and get a, a discount on a funeral package. So I didn't return the call. And then later I did return it. And it was this woman who said that she knew this woman named Shizuko Sugimoto, which was my mom's maiden name, Sugimoto, and how she was alive in Fresno. And I said, this can't be because I know all my family. So I then talked to my mom a little, and she says, oh, yeah, she's a cold, that's my older sister, and she died. So then I went to the funeral home and said, what's going on? And she explained to me that my aunt had had a stroke, and they thought she was going to pass, and she was in hospice care. And they had contacted this funeral home and this wonderful, wonderful woman. And it's ironic. She said, I'm a Christian and I don't want this one person to die alone. And the twist of it, a wonderful twist, is she's talking to the Buddhist, right? But her wonderful gentleness about not wanting this one woman to die alone and trying to locate the family was important to her. And that's how I got reconnected with this aunt. And then part of the next series of stories was how do I break this to my mom, my aunt, my uncle, that their sister they thought that had died was alive in Fresno. And that's where a lot of those other emotions about family secrets come out in all kinds of different ways. And I was a witness to try to understand that unfolding. So you go to visit your aunt and one of the care providers there very bluntly says to you, where have you been all of these years? It's this interesting dynamic of what is the meaning of family. You know, we have our birth families, and you could say we have our chosen families. My aunt's 
chosen family were the caregivers because they had known her for a longer time. They nurtured her. They understood her. And when I was talking with this worker at this assisted care facility, he was blunt but totally honest when I said, I'm her nephew. And he turns to me and he says exactly that. Where have you been all these years? And it put the whole idea of the family legacy in the right perspective to understand the dynamics that unfolded to have this story right and accept the fact that we weren't my aunt's only family. Her caregivers were her family. And I have to say, the caregivers were amazing because this was an older woman and you have stories of neglect and I'm sure in some cases and some moments of my aunt's life, there was some pretty tough times she went through. But the caregivers I met were amazing in that. And I like to think of them as they would be great organic farmers, where they would understand the nurturing that's involved when you care for the soil, when you care for the earth, when you care for the products you grow, and you grow them with the spirit that this is going to be good for the world. We have just a few minutes left, and I'm sure that as you do your book tours, you are going to want to pull different sections of your book out and read those. And I want to give you an invitation to pull out and read anything you'd like, but then I also have something that I want you to read as well. Oh, interesting. I'll read just from the first words of the book. Okay. I farm with ghosts. They live in our fields. Each peach tree has pruning scars from generations who work these orchards. Each vine has been shaped by the hands of workers who return to each year to add their touch to the sculpture. People and their families have etched their marks on my farm, and I too hope to leave behind a simple signature on this seemingly ordinary landscape. Ghosts inhabit our family history. Mm. Now, if, if you would be so kind as to turn to page 200 where you start out with, I believe. Well, I'm so glad that you were moved so much in this. Oh, absolutely. If I had to put this book in a nutshell, I think it teaches us to be kind. And I can't think of anything we need more of today, and that is to be kind to each other, to the others, to those who are different, to those who produce our food who have been invisible and continue to be invisible, those who toil, those who continue to immigrate to the United States for a better life, more kindness, more compassion, more empathy. I think we could start by reading your book. Thank you very much. Let me read that last passage. I believe Shizuko would have made a great farmer. There's an adage circulating in the farm community. I heard it after a hailstorm destroyed a block of our peaches just days before harvest. I watched the cold, dark clouds march across our valley, the thunder and lightning first pounding our farm, and then a neighbor's field, and then another hail plummeting fruits, knocking them to the ground, slicing the delicate skin, slashing the flesh with juices oozing out. The rot would soon fester, I stood outside witnessing the unfolding trauma. A neighbor contacted me in a silence bonded to farmers. Then he softly spoke. They did an autopsy on some old farmers, and when they opened them up, they found they were filled 
with next years. Shizuko is filled with next years. That is beautiful. Oh, thank you. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, I just want to thank them and understand that the story behind the foods they eat are all these stories of human life and many times secrets. All right. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. David Mas Masumoto, organic peach, nectarine, apricot, and grape farmer in the Central Valley of California. The book we've been talking about is titled Secret Harvest, A Hidden Story of Separation and the Resilience of a Family Farm. It's published by Red Hen Press. Thank you, Moss. Thank you.